Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for joining us. We're back today with another CRE Executive Roundtable. This time we're talking about how and why the retail sector changes between cycles. We've brought back Alan Shore, President and CEO of The Retail Connection, and Dan Hurwitz, Founder and CEO of Raider Hill, to share their insights with the group. If you're joining us today for the first time, welcome. Thanks again for listening. We put out all new episodes almost every week featuring roundtable discussions like this one, as well as event replays and exclusive interviews from around the organization. So please, please, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or on all the major ones like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We've linked to all of those pages and more in the show notes. You can also find Trek on social media, so follow us and get all the latest news and updates from around the Real Estate Council. Again, we've put each of our links in the show notes. And with that, here's our latest CRE Executive Roundtable featuring Alan Shore and Dan Hurwitz right here on TrackCast. All right, folks, I'm going to get us kicked off. Um, I am quite certain that uh, we have uh, about just under 25 people. I'm certain a bunch more people are going to jump in. So I'm going to do some quick introductions and then jump us in. Um, I'm going to start off with our hometown boy, Alan Shore. I think everybody knows him through, at least for the last 15 plus years, the retail connection. What you might not know as much is his position in the C-suite at Zales and really working on a national footprint, a lot of his uh, venture capital investment banking. So not only does Alan have a uh, the footprint of the retail connection from a kind of Southwest standpoint, but he also has a deep, deep um, national footprint where he enjoyed going to ICSE and trying to do 250 leases across the country at one time in a four day window, which is always fun. Um, so, Alan, thank you. And Alan has brought a guest. And Alan, before we talk about our guest, thank you very much for the coordination. Alan brought us in a ringer. Um, he brought <laughs> in Dan Hurwitz, um, Dan's founder and CEO of Raider Hill. And I'm going to short stroke this because I could go on way too long and take up the whole, the whole meeting on his uh, resume. Nayreet, Executive Board of Governors, Board of Directors for DDR, Board of Directors for GGP. Um, and post chairman, uh, immediate past chairman of um, ICSC. And um, not only has been around the proverbial retail block, apparently he owned most of it at one time or another. So um, Dan, we're really happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Um, and I think I've kind of given you the kind of profile of who listens in and um, we really appreciate your time. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and see some some old friends as well. Yeah, um, I'm going to kick us off. And um, I think Alan's going to have some feedback, some input, but he's also probably going to maybe jump in and ask some questions too. So we're going to, um, Alan's going to be a little bit of a player coach. He'll probably host a little bit and answer some questions. I'm going to kick us off with the most kind of common discussion and then I'm going to dive us into some pieces that I was taking a lot of notes on because I found fascinating and I think and hope y'all will as well. Um, we were talking about the pandemic and, and one of the questions was what has really changed and Dan you made a statement I've never seen a great real estate bail out a bad retailer but I've seen great retailers do great work in terrible spaces, which really gets us to the stick and brick of retail a little bit. So I'm gonna ask the following question. Um, and it was a question I, when I said, what two questions really do you think matter? One of them was, what does retail have right? Can you talk a little bit about what does retail have right right now in bricks and mortar? You really think it's here to stay. Can you talk about that? Because we have all this e-commerce you know, chatter, but retail, you said brick and mortar is still brick and mortar. It's the harder retail. Can you talk about that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. And again, thanks for having me. You know, I did a, I did a segment on uh, CNBC yesterday and the producer said to me at the beginning, you know, what we're going to try to figure out, I, I do fast money on CNBC and they said, what we're going to try to figure out is 
are people actually going to walk back into stores? Are they going to walk back into a Macy's, walk back, walk past cosmetics and handbags to go upstairs to women's ready to wear and see if they're going to buy stuff? And or are those days over? And I said to them, you know, we're, we're missing we're missing the fundamental point about retail, which is if they have the right merchandise at the right price and they promote it properly, the answer is yes. And if they don't have the right merchandise and they are not priced properly and they miss the fashion cycle or something of that nature, the answer is no, because in our business, the best merchant always wins. And that could be online, that could be in bricks and mortar, that could be a combination of the two, but the best merchant wins. And that goes to your point, Mike, you know, I've, uh, like I said, I've never seen good real estate bail out a bad merchant. And I've seen plenty of great merchants really prosper tremendously in below average real estate. Some of it's actually quite terrible. So the, the short answer is, uh, yeah, bricks and mortar retail is here to stay. And the, best, and the best merchants are going to win. But keep in mind, the numbers don't lie either. Some of it's just math. Now, if you look at the earnings that are out now and you're seeing some astronomical earnings, Target blew the doors off it today. Um, the bottom line is the stores are the really only avenue to profitability. And while, while e-commerce sales are up um, and they're up significantly, although they're down a little bit now, month to month, and they're going to be down year over year, probably for the months going forward because of, 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 of the impact of last year. But as, as a practical matter, um, no one should be surprised that margin goes down when e-commerce sales go up. That's just pretty standard. So what do you need? You need a store. You need a store. You need buy online pickup in store. You need buy online ship from store to reduce your shipping costs. And you need people to walk in and buy to preserve your margin. So I don't think there's any question. And I actually think the industry came out of the pandemic better than it was going in because it forced people to get better. And it gave them some time to invest and to recalibrate their business appropriately. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And just to get one more kind of general conversation on the table before we dive in, in that regard, we were talking about the experience economy and as retail has morphed from um, racks of clothing to showrooming as uh, stick and click came on, the whole experience economy of going there for dining and other experiences were there. And we were talking about the experience is the product and then we had the question of who is, who is the, the um, who's the influencer? You know, is it Kim Kardashian? Is it Michael Jordan? Who's the influencer? And you said something I thought was really fascinating. You said, no, no, the retailer is the influencer. Yeah. Can you talk about that as a general subject for a minute? Because that's a bit kind of counterintuitive. I mean, I want to look like Trey Morse back. And you're telling me that the retailer is the influencer, not Trey. And I'm confused. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, um, Trey's a good example, you know, uh, and, and, and so is Mark. Mark. Mark Gibson wins best dressed at every ICSE board meeting. Hands down. <laughs> hands down. I mean, the competition is not stiff, but nevertheless, he just, he just, he just wins. Um, the, the truth is, that you look at uh, uh, Trey and Mark are a great example. They both are wearing great looking ties today. Neither one of them needed that tie. They have a, they have a closet full of ties. And, 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 they, and they were obviously inspired by going into a store or perhaps a value play or whatever it must have been, but they wanted something. They didn't need anything. And that's the thing that's so important about um, our economy. We don't need a thing. We're building bigger and bigger houses and our closets are full. We, big, we build beautiful kitchens and we eat out more often. Um, we don't need a thing. So, so from the standpoint of who's the influencer, you know, in many cases, and the, the, US, the U.S. consumer has proven, because you could see through the sales that we're seeing now, the influence is value. And the great merchants that can produce and, and offer you value, because I'm sure there's, even though many people on this call have the ability to do so, no one wants to pay full price. And I'm not talking about cheap. I'm not saying we're looking for cheap. We're just looking for value. And the reason why we're looking for value is because we don't need anything. 
we don't need anything. So we, we want to make sure that we're getting a good, a good purchase. We want to make sure we're getting a good buy. And, and the retailers have to motivate us to do that. I mean, I, I think the influencer thing is, is, is interesting. But keep in mind, e-commerce sales are going to be, you know, it depends who you talk to, somewhere between 12 and 20% of total sales of what is a $7 trillion market a year. You know, so, so it's, it's, it's important, it's nice, it's interesting, but it's not, the, it's not the bulk of the business. And the bulk of the business needs to be to inspire people to purchase things they don't need. Can, can you give me a, can you give us an example of some of those people you think are doing a really good job now in terms of retailing on the influence side? Well, I think, I think, I think, and on the department store side, for example, you know, people tend to look at, at the, forgetting the financial health of everybody for a minute, but they tend to look at the Neiman Marcuses and the Nordstrom's as influencers at the, at the, at the higher price point. Macy's is clearly a moderate department store now, and they tend to influence at the moderate price point. But you also have people that are doing a phenomenal job like uh, Lululemon, for example. Um, outstanding influencer, can't get enough space, sales per square foot off the charts, continue to grow, haven't even really tapped into the potential that they have for the men's um, area. They have some men stuff, obviously, but they can do a lot more, and it's a huge growth area for them. Um, health and beauty, you look at Sephora's and Ulta's, all influencers for sure. And they're influencing the consumer and they're winning because their merchandise is right. And their merchandise is right and it's consistently right. And that's what Target changed um, over the last couple of years where we were talking about Target potentially being bought by Amazon three years ago. And now obviously Target is doing spectacular. Walmart doing the same thing. So I think, I think it all depends on who the best merchant is in their particular division. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the club space, you cannot argue that Costco is not the dominant merchant in that division. Well, why is that? You know, Costco is the number one seller of diamonds in the country. Alan knows that better than anybody. Well, why is that? You know, they're great merchants and the great merchants win. So Alan, you have a big footprint in Texas, either based on your uh, agency work, your portfolio, your tenant rep side, how does what you're seeing in the leasing side match up over the last few months? Let's kind of call that transitional post-pandemic because we're not post-pandemic, but transitional. How does it match with what Dan's talking about? Yeah, look, I, I think Dan's right on. And um, <clears throat> of course, it's always nice when you have a relationship with, with people who are smarter than you, but Dan is, is I think right on the money. You know, there's been a lot of talk about experiential retail. Retailers today have to give the customer an experience in addition to everything else they have to do to be successful. And I think that's, I think that's true, but not to the extent that, uh, you know, that we're hearing about. People do want to be social. They want to interact. They want to have an experience. And the retailers that can add that to their portfolio to their arsenal um, will be the most successful retailers. But at the end of the day, the basics of relevant product and competitive pricing will win out. If you can add an experience the way Lulu does in some of their stores with, uh, with yoga studios or Peloton or others, then you'll just be all the better. And when you add the component of a strong e-commerce business, you're going to succeed. But at the end of the day, 80 cents of every dollar still gets rung up in the store. And so what we're seeing is in the last 60 to 90 days, and Trey made this point on our last call about these false narratives, you know, we're seeing retail really open up. Restaurants have been hot, entertainment's starting to open up, but the retail space is really starting to open up and retailers are talking about growing again. They're talking about it in a little bit different way where they're, you know, maybe their store design is going to change to better accommodate, to Dan's point, buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, the ability to buy something, return it at a store. So they're, they're becoming more efficient in their space. But, um, you know, we're big, big uh, uh, advocates and cheerleaders for the physical store space because it's not going anywhere. And that was a false narrative 
nine months ago, both the fact that e-commerce would, because of the acceleration of e-commerce, it would put a nail in the coffin of, of, of physical retail and the fact that all these retail properties would start coming back in droves, neither of which is turning out to be true by any stretch. So we get into this kind of quasi-demographic conversation, Dan, where after the first blush, we find out, again, false narrative. Um, the, the, the millennial actually shops online but buys in a store, and a baby boomer might be prone to shop in the store and buy online, get six boxes and return five of them. Um, gosh, who has the who has the firepower? Who are we marketing to and who really spends the money right now? You were talking about that, Dan. You're talking about who has the money that the, we're all marketing to millennials, but are they really, are, 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 they, are they writing the checks right now? Are they spending the cash? Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to be attractive to the millennials because that's such a huge portion of our population and up and coming, but they tend to be cheap. You know, they, they, they tend not to spend. Um, and they tend to be more conservative with their dollars. And, and, and the people who have just been focused on millennials have learned that lesson in many ways uh, the hard way. So I think, I think knowing your consumer, I mean, we've, we've said this for, for many, many years, you know, the retailers, we meet with retailers on a regular basis and it's, it always, it, 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 there's always a direct correlation between those people that can sit in the room and tell you exactly who their customer is and the success of that, of that company. And those people who are trying to be, you know, trying to buckshot everything and trying to be broad and, 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 and in many cases, very non-specific on who their customer is, and they're trying to catch the the, the next big wind. Um, those people struggle. Those people struggle. So I think I think you know the concept of whether it's millennials, whether it's boomers, whether it's Gen Z or X or whatever it all is. I think that's that's interesting. But I think you have to understand your merchandise strategy. And I think your merchandise strategy, if it's right, will attract people across the board. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing so that particularly Alan, with the would, mass mergence. So you and Alan have kind of just said, stick and brick is here to stay. It's, it's 80 Allen's number. It's 80%, 85%, whatever that number is of, of retail, not just your everyday needs, food, drugstore, but, but the, the real needs. So what does retail, how does retail have it? We talked about what does it have, right? What is, what's wrong with retail right now? What is wrong? I think you talked about the amount of retail square footage, but can you jump into what's wrong with retail? Well, one of the things that's wrong in general, and I know Mark heard me say this before, is that I, I've, I've never really been of the opinion that we're overbuilt. I have been of the opinion that we're under demolished. I think, I think what we do wrong in retail is we call things retail that we all know are never going to be retail again. And just because there's a sign, and we see it in Dallas all the time, just because there's a sign up on a shopping center that says for lease, it doesn't mean it'll ever lease. I mean, that, that, that center needs to come down, that center needs to change you. So what do we have wrong? One of the things we have wrong is that we're not particularly honest with ourselves about the future of properties that are in distress. That's something we have wrong, and that skews the numbers. So when we talk about the fact that we're overbuilt in this country, um, you know, mathematically that's correct, except, except functionally that may not be as, as, as big a problem as, as, as people think, because, you know, like we always talk about a distressed shopping center is always something that somebody else owns. Right. And, 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 and you want to make sure that you don't own that and that you're realistic. So I think that's something that retail has, wrong the other thing in real estate retail real estate the other thing that i think people have wrong and this is probably the biggest point is we used to talk about retail real estate as if it were one asset class and it just is not um and again i'll i'll pick on mark but but he knows better than anybody that there's a huge difference in the capital markets between a grocery anchored neighborhood center and a million square foot regional mall that already lost one of its anchors, you know, and it's, and everyone counts that as, as retail real estate, but it is a different world we're in today. 
you know, we've had complete market capitulation on the mall side. We have not seen that in the open air side at all. A little bit maybe in the power centers, but not, but not in the community centers and grocery anchored neighborhood centers. And when we talk about our business, we have to start talking, stop talking about as if it's one, because it's not. It's just not. And there's winners and there's losers. And the market is being smart and is figuring out who those winners are and they're avoiding those losers. And until such time as we differentiate, we're gonna all get thrown in this big bucket of the mall is dying, you know, bricks and mortar is dying. It's a, and there's no evidence that that is happening. Well, we're gonna come back to malls in a minute. And Frank's obviously on the phone, on the call. We're gonna come back to Frank in a second because he's been a market leader in, in, in <clears throat> Dallas and Nashville. I think he's got one or two up in the Rust Belt on taking malls and repositioning them, but not just repositioning, repurposing the, your demolition kind of comment. But Alan, Y'all bought a property a while back that you and I had worked on 15 plus years ago and you demolished the old Sackowitz and put in a Whole Foods. Is that something you're seeing a lot of in your portfolio, more of this, that to use Dan's words, to not just the leap for the leasing sign, but the, re, the demolishing and repositioning of retail to make it current or just taking it down and putting a different, are you used there? Are you seeing a lot of that, Alan? Uh, you know, I think we will. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of ground up development, particularly big projects. It's just too expensive. Um, you've got to have a certain type of retailer that can pay the kind of rents that backs you into a fair return uh, on new construction. I think we'll see redevelopment. You know, what we did at Village on the Parkway when we added the Whole Foods and the AMC um, uh, was obviously at a time where um, both of those uses were very, very strong. I think in, in redevelopment opportunities going forward, we may see a, a fair amount of non-retail being developed into an existing uh, asset. And, um, you know, whether it's multifamily, whether it's some, you know, small office, uh, whether it's, you know, maybe a last mile uh, sort of distribution function that wants to be closer to the neighborhoods. But I do think that redevelopment will be, at least in the near term, uh, a major part of what we do versus new ground up development. Yeah, and fascinating conversation on that is when you're doing that ground up for the repositioning, I've obviously personally been a huge advocate of uh, hyper-local experience, uh, local restaurateurs, coffee shops, getting them started, local chefs, partially because it supports, we have a, a, a deep bench here if we just give them a chance, but also because there's this kind of bifurcated trend going at the same time for the national and for a sense of identity and that we're all looking for. Maybe that's been brought, unveiled even more right now, Dan, in the current environment. We were talking about hyper-local and national. And then I was on the hyper-local bent. I mean, even Ray with his high street retail that he's got at Highland Park Village has a mix of, I'll call it hyper-local, but, but you made a comment the other day that at the end of the day, it's still about merchandising mix. Um, can you talk about your kind of take on hyper-local versus national, what you're seeing across the board? Well, I think, I think now more than ever, there's opportunities to get a little more local um, because, you know, vacancy rates are up and national tenants are not the same credit profile they were pre-pandemic. You know, one of the things you give up when you go local typically is you give up credit quality of cash flow. So if you're an institutional investor or you're an institutional owner, um, we spend most of our time on the institutional side. Um, it's very hard to justify having a local coffee guy when you can get Starbucks credit on a lease. It's very hard. And, and, and in many cases, it's often more expensive because don't forget your landlords are typically the first look lender. To, to, to local businesses from a tenant allowance package. Um, today, I think we've gotten to the point where number one, vacancy requires us to be a little more creative and a little more amenable, but I also think um, the merchandise mix and the curation of the center is important because we are trying very hard to make ourselves different. You know, you can go to a Target coal shopping center in Connecticut or a Target coal shopping center in California and you don't even know where you are. It's the same stuff. 
everything's everything's the same stuff. I mean, we've homogenized the business to a level where we're boring, and and it's and it's dry. Um, so if you're able to go out and get yourself eight percent of of local tenants that make you unique and make you different and make you exciting, you ought to do that. It's very important because everyone needs to have some authenticity to their site, uh, something that makes you different within the market. The, the, the trade-off is typically credit quality of cash flow, and you have to be careful with that as well, um, particularly if you use if you're accessing the capital markets. Uh, Ray, why don't you take yourself off uh, mute for a second? I'm going to ask you a question, Ray. You've got Highland Park Village. You're not just national. You've got the best. Um, you've curated some of the best retailers uh, on a global level, yet you have, and you have a Starbucks, but then you have Bisto 31 and Me Casino. So your local tent is mainly on the dining experience side. Was that because you just knew them and they fit and they were already there or was there a deeper thought behind it? Well, first on Starbucks, when their lease is up in two years, I'm not renewing them. So I'll get to that answer because I want a local coffee shop like Ascension or something like that to his point of creating the local feel. But yeah, the, all the restaurants are local people, um, except Honor Bar, which is, you know, Hillstone, but they created a unique space. So that was part of it. When people come to Dallas, we want them to have a one of a kind of experience coming in here. And that's why we have a cobbler named Dino's, but Dino's does about $1,300 a foot in sales as a shoe cobbler, but it's the best in, in the city. And the thing on your credit, what we do with these people, we go into it with these local retailers and we do very, very short-term leases because I've got the luxury of being able to do that, but also we're not sure if they're going to work or not. And we just opened a tenant last week, a local lady who makes headbands. Okay. Get this in 300 square feet. She, in three days, she did $70,000. Okay. Selling $75 headbands and called Lily and unbelievable and people driving in from Houston. So you can get small local and she's a local lady that makes this stuff. But my question for Dan is geofencing because for us, I'd like to geofence, you know, Chanel, Dior, Hermes, and those, those people. What are you seeing in that in the geofencing world? Because from a retailer shopping center owner, I think that's going to have huge repercussions if we can figure out a way to make our tenants geofence and we can collect percentage rent. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that, it, but it's a battle. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> the tenants are not cooperative, and 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 they're and and we have not seen any sign that 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 the tenants are going to cooperate on that. They view that as as entirely proprietary. Um, they certainly don't want to share the information, not not just with the landlord, but they're afraid the landlord's going to share it with comp with their competitors. You know, you're going to that geofence information. It's great information when you want to go out and lease another space, right? I mean, that is that is terrific marketing information. Um, I, I think the whole concept of of, of geofencing, while you know it's not new. I mean, when I was CEO of uh, DDR, we were geofencing our assets almost 12 years ago, and and we were having tenants put in. Um, so when people came to the site, we automatically knew it. We'd hit them with sales. We'd hit them with promotions. But the tenants don't participate. They, they really, the, the, the tenants, you know, as much as, you know, your center, particularly, you know, Highland is, is unique and, 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 and is in a, a different world than, than, than most everyone else. Um, most everyone else is just viewed as a provider of space by the tenant. And when you really sit down with them and say, we want to share with you on technology, we want to share information, we want to do things that make the asset better, we're having a hard time getting tenants to say, geez, that's a really good idea. Most of them look at us and say, don't worry, we got it covered. So, so Trey or Mark, let me ask, y'all can decide <clears throat> who the right one is to answer this. Um, and Andy, I'm leaving you off because I don't think this is right in your wheelhouse, but if I've got that wrong, I apologize and pile in. Let me ask you a question. Um, Lucy owns a retail center and she's working on that nationals, but she's got some local talent in there. Geofencing, does this matter when Lucy takes that product to sell? Is it going to affect her cap rate? Is it going to affect her, capa her capacity to maximize the value of her sale? 
I think Dan nailed it earlier. I think it's performance. I think it's format. I think it's how the center's positioned in the market. I think how the retailers are doing. I'm sort of a skeptic in the concept of credit and retail to begin with. It's an old adage that there is no credit in retail. Um, and Dan, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Crow Holdings small retail platform that they've done. I am. They, they basically proved that through the pandemic, that it was their credit retailers, their national retailers that performed by far and away the worst um, than their local mom and pops. Because they obviously have a lot of, this is a small strip sort of, well-located, you know, retail, you know, program that Crow has on scale, you know, hundreds of Unanchored. And their local mom and pop, local regional tenants completely outperform, not just on their ability to pay rent, but actually on their performance at the store level. So they actually sort of disproved it. And it was all the nationals that decided that they weren't going to pay rent and didn't perform and were much more challenged. So it was interesting. It was sort of, at least, and the pandemic's not normalized times, Dan. I understand that. Um, you know, but there was, you know, it tested the whole concept around credit. So I, I would tell you that we've got many examples. One right downstairs here, if you think about what happened in Victory that Asana bought, I, I'm not sure there was anyone that was even a name brand, much less credit. Like there was a bunch of, you know, this was a street retail that Asana paid an extraordinarily low cap rate and, you know, high price for because of its format, because of its location because of what they believe they could, you know, do at the asset level. So, I mean, Dan, you may disagree with me. I just tell you from a capital markets perspective, um, you know, in certain formats, if it's well-performing, I'm not so sure credit shows up as much. Um, All right. So Mark, I've got a, Gibson, I got a question for you. You, you kind of heard Dan and Alan's take and Trey opined on the question I asked. Mark, I know you, you know Dan well. What question would you have for Dan right now about retail? Well, first of all, thanks, Mike. I, I would just say everyone on the call who doesn't know Dan, we are unbelievably fortunate and blessed to have him on this call. There is no more retail investor expert in the United States. And Dan, I mean that with all sincerity. Very kind of you, Mark. Uh, you left out a lot of, uh, th uh, in his introduction, Mike, that would shock a lot of people uh, from an investor standpoint on this call, but there's no there's no more prolific expert in the retail space than Dan. So we're very fortunate. So Dan, thanks for joining, buddy. Thank um, you. And a good guy, too, to boot, which is, which is, even, which is even better. Uh, so my question, Dan, goes a little bit along the lines of where we just were, when do you see or do you see um, the leasing, the lease document itself, the structure of the lease and in particular co-tenancy components from an investment standpoint, um, everything that you said, I'm in full agreement with across the board. But from an investor perspective, retail is one of these odd asset classes where you could have a domino effect as a result of the actual lease structure. And that is causing quite a bit of angst uh, in the large LP capital markets world because it is difficult to predict how retail will perform to Trey's point. So what do you see on that? Have you seen any movement uh, just given where things are today, or how does that, how does that look? Well, I appreciate your kind words, Mark, and the feeling is very mutual. So thank you. Um, I, I will say that um, we're not seeing great movement in in the lease side, primarily because we have to be honest about the fact that the leverage is not on the side of the landlord currently. And until such time as the landlord's the, the landlord tenant dynamic switches back in just a modicum of, uh, of momentum to the towards the landlord, the tenants are not going to give on the issues that are material bargain for rights that they've historically gotten. Um, and, and, and what we're seeing is real estate people working for tenants who actually understand what we're asking for. They actually understand saying, there's no way I could take it to real estate committee without getting my head chopped off. So I, I can't do it. I can't do it at this point in time. You know, we have very little leverage 
over a tenant today, um, you know, with the exception of, of, of outstanding assets that some of you own that, that are just, you know, bell cow assets within a community. But the majority of, 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 of landlords own, own assets that don't, that don't command that kind of attention. And when you don't have two or three people bidding on a space, and you only have one, no matter whether you're in a pandemic or whether you're in a terrific market. I mean, in order for us to drive rents, in order for us to, to amend leases, to accommodate things like what you're talking about, co-tenancy, restrictions, exclusives, um, percentage rent clauses, uh, whatever it might be, um, we need more than one person looking at the space. And in most cases today, most landlords don't have more than one and they're fighting like hell to find that one. So the tenants are not being overly cooperative. What we are seeing though, I will say this, what we all are seeing, because we've sort of resorted to plan B because we're not winning on plan A, which is ignore all historic health ratios by asset class and by tenant and push for a higher number. And the reason that's working a little bit is because we know there's just as much business going out the back door that's coming out the front door. And we're not getting full credit for it. We know for a fact that the e-commerce, the buy online pickup in store or buy online ship from store in particular, is not, the store is not getting full credit for it. And by the way, the retailers will tell you they can't give the store full credit for it because they did that, the bonus for the store manager would be more than the CEO. So they, they, just, they just, they keep a separate set of books at the store level. So when you go in and you say, well, I know you can pay me 14% total occupancy costs and this is where I wanna be because I know what your margins are and I understand where you've been historically. And, and, and usually the tenant would say, okay, at 14, we're getting agreement now at 17, 18 and 19% where in the past, those numbers would give you concern about a tenant. Now we're getting the tenant to actually agree to this. They're not agreeing to reducing co-tenancy, they're not agreeing to including uh, online sales in the store for percentage rent purposes. They're not agreeing to a lot of the things that you're thinking about, Mark, but, but they are agreeing to pay us more as a percent of, of their total. And that tells us, if they're agreeing to that, that there's a heck of a lot more business being done through the four walls of that space than they're telling us about. So it's become, interestingly, less math and more of a negotiation in a lot of ways. You know, in the old days, you would do the math and you know what they could afford to pay and then you, you know what the, the break points were and it wasn't that complicated. Now it's, it's, there's a little more wiggle room because of what's happening in the market. But that's, that's the only real muscle we have as landlords today. And right now, I don't see that changing anytime soon as the tenant universe knows exactly how to use their leverage. That's, that's fascinating uh, because we do know a lot is online. We know there's a close correlation and the notion of how does one capture that on the real estate side. If you can't get it here, you can't get it here. You just got a notion yeah. to over there. I really, that was a great, thank you, Mark. Um, I want to open it up in a minute to Craig and Rand and Lucy and everybody else, but I want to ask one more general question and then put it out there. And, and Frank's on the call and Frank has a deeper bench of mall work right now, I think, than anybody else on the call. Um, when we were talking about malls the other day, um, before we talked, I'd heard the number, there's 1,300 malls and there might be 600 when we're done. And are malls making money? Are they here to stay? Um, apart from the category killer, the, the North Park, just generically speaking, um, the health of malls, kind of your general thoughts on malls, their health, their resiliency, are they growing in value? Can you talk about that to everybody for a minute? Because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, malls are in trouble. Um, you know, even a mall, when I, you know, we sold general, when I was lead director at General Growth Properties, we sold the company to Brookfield. And you see all the numbers. And the truth is, um, a malls today, a malls, you know, the top mall in any given market on a CapEx adjusted basis is no growth. And when we, when we sold general growth to Brookfield, one of the things that we 
we couldn't get our arms around um, going forward was the cost that it was going to take for us to maintain NOI. Don't even, not even growing NOI, but maintaining NOI, and 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 the amount of capital that was required makes it um, institutionally unattractive. Because I don't know any institutions that want to own real estate and not know what their capex is going to be going forward. So there's going to be great opportunities. Um, because one thing about malls is they throw off tremendous cash flow. Um, but you have to be massively disciplined in capital allocation decisions. I don't think malls are going to disappear. I know there's a lot of chat about that. I think that, 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 that malls are going to survive. I do think the notion that there's an A mall and a B mall and a C mall is wrong. I mean, if you look at the numbers, just the pure numbers, there's A malls and then everything else. Um, because that second and third tier have all become the third and fourth tier and they just sort of blend together. Okay, so we, see, this, a big, we see a big mall owner, we see a big mall owner buying retailers now. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I, I, I will say that, and for those of us who have been in the business a long time, it never ends well, to be <laughs> candid, I mean, you know, it, it's never ended well, whether you're, I mean, I dating myself, but you go back to the Crown American days and the Wilmerate days and, 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 and the Bartolo and, and, and I mean, it, it never, Tallman owning Wanamakers and Woodward and Lothrop, it's never particularly ended well. Um, this is a little different though, I think, because number one, this is not a mall owner who thinks he's a retailer. I've had a number of conversations with him um, over the, over the past several months and he's a, he's a dear friend and, and he's not trying to be something he's not. And he is very focused on owning intellectual property, which I actually think is prudent. Cause I think, I think the intellectual property play is, is interesting um, because there's a lot of retailers that have disappeared, but the name is worth certainly more than the, than the franchise was. When I was uh, chair of the investment committee on general growth, we partnered with Simon on the Aeropostale acquisition and I can tell you the numbers were um, not overly compelling, but you know, truth is when you have an $85 billion balance sheet, there's not a lot you can't afford. Um, and you were buying the intellectual property at you know, $15 million. I mean, it wasn't it was sort, of a, sort of a rounding error for the big boys. So you, you, you test it. But as long as you don't try to be something you're not, I mean, if you, if David Simon were on this call right now, he would tell you point blank, he is not a merchant. He has no interest in running JCPenney. He has, and he's not going to walk through the store and pick out the color of the spring blouses or whether to go with lace-up shoes or strappy sandals. He's not going to do that. Uh, and those people who tried to do that are going to lose. So I, I think the way he's doing it is the right way to do it. And I think maintaining that discipline and allowing the merchants to run the business, he has a much greater chance of success than the historical failures that we've seen in our business. So we're going to kick off some questions around the horn. Everybody's welcome to jump in. But Alan, we had, I thought, I mean, for me, it was a great call the other day. I really enjoyed it. What, what did we, what have I not asked that you thought was, poignant from our call deal that you'd like to bring up or talk about or ask Dan about? Well, you know, Dan is a dear friend and we, we talk a lot and, and we spend time talking about the retail space and the retail real estate space. He and I sit on a board together and, um, and I knew he would be perfect for this call, by the way. So Dan, thank you again for, for the time and, and agreeing to do this. It, uh, I think it's been, it's been great. You know, I think that we, um, I think that we've covered most of, of what we talked about. You know, one of the things we did talk about that maybe we haven't covered at least directly. And um, to Dan's point, I thought, you know, I, I keep saying that retail is overbuilt and Dan has educated me and that it's not overbuilt, it's under demolished, which I think is <laughs> a genius way of putting it. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing, to Dan's point about um, about retail, existing retail boxes never becoming retail again, is that we, you know, we've been engaged by a group to go find dark boxes, big boxes, um, that will not 
come back as retail, but will come back as some, some type of a warehouse last mile distribution. And the, the parameters we've been given uh, are anywhere from 30,000 to 200,000 square foot dark retail boxes. You know, and, and so <clears throat> one of the things that we haven't addressed directly, but I think is, is, is clearly the case, and we have talked about it on past calls, is sort of the blending, the blurring between retail and industrial. Uh, you know, it used to be, I'm not an industrial guy, but, but industrial is very distinct from, from uh, you know, from the retail space. And now it's starting to blend a little bit. And we're talking to retailers who want to open up showrooms with, a, with a, uh, a warehouse attached to it that they can distribute out of. So, you know, I, I, I guess the question that maybe gets asked here is, you know, is that a trend that's got legs? Is that a long-term trend or is that in direct response to the acceleration of, of e-commerce? You know, I think, I, I think people um, are going to have a hard time executing and we're seeing a number of situations. Don't forget our shopping centers have, I tell people all the time, we own the shopping center, but we don't control it, right? We have REAs, we have leases, we have other operating agreements that, that when I was in the department store side of the business earlier in my career, we used to sit around the room and negotiate an REA. And our goal was to devalue the asset without our consent. Right? Our goal was to make sure that we can extort dollars should a, a smart landlord want to do something without my consent. And, and all, those, all those documents are now coming back to roost. I mean, I, I'm seeing documents that actually I signed on the department store sign you know, in, in, in the nineties that are coming back that I don't think anyone's pulled out of a drawer for 30 years or 40 years. And then next thing you know, you look at these things and you say to yourself, what are we doing? Um, so I think, I think there's a, an interest in that. And I think there's possibility, but I think it's going to be talked about more than it's going to be done because the cost to get consensus is going to be high. And, and we're seeing not a lot of municipalities that want to convert their tax base from retail to industrial. Keep in mind, industrial assets pay a fraction of what retail assets pay. And, you know, you're going to, you completely dilute your tax base the more you convert retail to, to industrial. Um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's going to be a conversation that's difficult um, for local entitlements in, in particular. So Dan, did, um, did I get this right? You're having to negotiate against your past self here. Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing? One hundred percent. And 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 I'm not proud of myself either. I mean, I must say, <laughs> the controls that were put in place were draconian. So I do think I do think that we have to be you know realistic about our businesses. Our business has operating documents that are difficult to navigate. And, and they often have a dilutive effect on the value of the real estate. Uh, or, or they give others an opportunity to reduce your margin. And that's going to be, that's going to be, that's going to be a, an issue that we're going to have to face going forward. But, and, and that's why people talk about um, changing uses on retail properties. But we drive by the same empty properties all the time. And the, very few uses have changed because it's hard. It's hard. I know you're, I totally agree with Alan. People want to change them, but it's hard work. It, it's hard work to get the approvals and the permission to do what you want to do. So we have five, 10 minutes left. Um, everybody, please, if, if anybody has a question, please jump in. Uh, since you mentioned my name a couple of times, Mike, I'm going to jump in real quick. Um, one quick analysis of sales tax. Um, a tenant's trying to do the co-tenancy uh, clause on me. And so we get two sets of sales figures and one of them is a hundred thousand less than the other. And the hundred thousand was the sales that were sold at that store when it was closed out of their back door. And they're not including those when they're negotiating, but I'd say, how did you sell? How does that store have sales when the store is closed in April and March? And it was just, you know, the playing of the sales tax. Back to y'all's earlier question. Um, you're right on regarding REAs that are in place and ownership. Those are two biggest obstacles that, that stop us from even looking at them all that we've done. Fortunately, the first one we did in Nashville didn't have any REAs. We won ownership. Uh, Radford, that was working with Peter here, the, all the REAs expired. Our, our REA in Atlanta is expiring October 21. 
know that day, you know, big and strong, but, but to your point about values of these malls, we bought a couple of malls from WPG and, and the NOI at that time was $3 million. Those same NOIs today is about 300,000 and that's in a period of four years. So, you know, when you talk about where the B malls went, that's where they went. Um, we had a Macy's open, a Penny's, a Sears and a Kohl's, but today we just have Macy's. Uh, fortunately, we've been able to put Emory in and they're taking the old Sears and, and Kohl's space with the right to expand and do more. So we've been able to repurpose these into mixed use, but we look at them as real estate first, you know, and what are the obstacles if you can't put it together? And if it's good real estate and there's a purpose, even in South Dallas, there's a purpose for, for what we're doing down there. There's a purpose in North Lake and Atlanta, but you, it's a lot of hard work to point. And the capital markets, Trey, Mark, you guys haven't helped at all because anything that ties to a mall, even with a net lease with Emory, it was impossible to get capitalization last October, in the middle of COVID. I mean, we had to resell our souls and redo it. And it was just a, it was a joke because you've got a Emory lease, net lease. And one more thing I want to make a point is we were able to say no to a couple of retailers a couple of times. Uh, I was, could not do a Target, Walmart deal in Nashville because we had uh, Vanderbilt. I had to tell Home Goods and Alt, I'm sorry, I got to do Emory in that same space. I can't take your $11 rent versus $18 rents that I'm getting from my healthcare. So the economics, you know, there's a more cost sometimes involved, but if the world has changed and you can't, the, to your answer, the malls are gonna go away. They're only gonna be a lot less. We overbuilt. Uh, it goes back to the department stores and everybody growing. It's a, you know, we're, 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 we're living mistakes that were made in the 90s when we signed these REAs. <laughs> Anyway. So, Dan, so Dan, do do Frank's comments kind of resonate to you on a broader scale across the country? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think Frank is spot on. I mean, we're we're seeing the exact same things. I mean, there, the no matter what you do uh, in the mall business right now, the capital markets are less friendly than other asset classes. Um, because I mean, and and the capital markets aren't totally wrong. I mean, they are viewed malls are viewed as being higher risk, and 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 they are, uh, and they've proven themselves to be higher risk. Now, if they come out of the pandemic, and they prove themselves to be more resilient than people thought that they were going to be, then going into the pandemic, that might change. But I think that I think the market wants to be proven wrong before it embraces um, the future, the future of the mall. But yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with Frank, and I think what he's experiencing. Um, others are experiencing throughout the country. And that's also where the opportunity lies too, to some extent, right? I mean, these assets are going to be sold. They're going to be traded. Um, you know, Washington Prime assets that, that, that Frank bought, um, I'm sure he's going to do just fine on those assets. And, 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 and as a result, there's going to be other assets that are being sold, particularly by the large public companies who, quite frankly, don't have the human capital to, and time to put into them because they're not FFO or creative. They take a lot of time and they get graded quarterly. So they're better off getting rid of them than keeping them. Yeah, your comment resonates with me because the, one of the malls in Dallas that was built in 71 to 73 is an outer loop mall in Dallas at the time called Valley View. Yeah. It's found its greater value being just dirt because now it's an infill site. Seritage obviously capitalized on that notion years ago when they, when, when, uh, they divested the, the real estate from the operating, which is interesting. Okay, one last question from somebody other than me. So everybody, and by the way, before we sign off, um, Alan and Dan, thank you. This gets recorded. Our membership watches these tremendously in, in, in reviews and replays online. So even though we have 20, 25 people here, it will be very broadly distributed and these are really enjoyed. So again, thank you. Who wants to give Dan the last unanswerable? Oh, Lucy's going to ask you the unanswerable question, Dan. No, 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 it's not unanswerable. I, I need an answer. Um, this is a, a different kind of question, but we build um, uh, unanchored strip retail and have tried to come up with new models and um, make them be vastly better experiences than what we're all so used to. What are the best examples in the nation of uh, great experiences for this small strip retail? Well, again, I, I think 
the word experience tend in, in my yeah. mind in, in my mind people often confuse what experience is you know there are people um that think that that means great public art and great amenities and beautiful landscaping mm -hmm. and, and and great music and all that i happen not to believe in that i i happen to think well, it's very nice by the way if you can afford it i happen to believe that the best experience is going to be the curation of your merchandise mix the merchandise is the experience for the consumer. Right. The consumer has proven that they don't care who owns the asset and they don't necessarily sure. care where the asset is. They, they want, they, they care who occupies the asset. And, you know, our job as owners of, of, of real estate is to make sure that we curate the best tenant mix we can to attract the most customers to serve the market. And everything else is secondary to that. So I think the thing that the, the local unanchored strips do so well, and they and and it goes back to your point, Trey, a little bit. Is they curate? They know their markets. They're not lazy. They're not lazy. They're not telephone leasing people. They actually canvas. They go find people that are unique. They find people that are cool. They find people that have a following that don't even know what their potential could be. But we show them that we believe in them even more than they believe in themselves sometimes. So I think the way you lease the center, the way you curate the merchandise mix. Um, makes all the difference of the world in the world, and that's why I think those small unanchored grocery, I mean, the small unanchored strip centers, work well with those people who are smart enough and aggressive enough to lease in that way. And they don't work particularly well. There's a lot of examples of them, but they don't work particularly yeah. well because people are lazy at how they lease. Thank you. So, so Lucy and I are now taking a road trip. Everybody is invited. We're going to go right. look at um, the Greater in uh, Peace. And the last note I just got out of Dan, which I put a star next to, was five years ago, when speaking or listening, I think the heart of it that you heard over and over was the experience is the product. And what Dan is advocating is the merchandise is the experience at the end of the day. And that's a profound shift in the I'd say that what the experience economy was first written about in the 90s. And so this might be like the third generation. And I think then I'm putting words in your mouth that you tell me on a closing statement, we're seeing the experience economy morphing into its more mature phase back to a, almost, you're almost like a fundamentalist, the fundamental roots that comes back to, as you kept on saying, product service experience, the experience is the product that the customer wants. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the early 90s, when I worked for a retailer, the CEO had a big banner on his wall that said, it's the merchandise, stupid. And everyone who walked in and talked about whatever they were talking about, the weather, the promotional calendar, this to that. I mean, Alan, you know more about it than I do because you were a true operator. But he had a big banner on his wall that said, it's the merchandise, stupid. If, we, if we're merchandised right, then we're going to win. And if we're not merchandised right, we're going to lose. And to Lucy's point, if we merchandise and curate correctly, our shopping centers are going to win. And if we don't, we're going to lose. Alan, last words. I, I, I can't say it any better. It, it's sort of like bell-bottom pads, right? Everything is, is <laughs> it's become retro. And I think what's happening in retail is, is great retailers are getting back to the basics back to the fundamental blocking and tackling of great merchandise, merchandise that, that the customers want at a price that's competitive and anything they can add around that, e-commerce, an experience, maybe service related opportunity in the store, it's just gonna make, it's just gonna make that retailer better. But if you can't merchandise the store and you can't price your goods, it doesn't matter how good everything else is, you're not gonna succeed. Well, on behalf of the Real Estate Council, I'm going to let Linda wrap us up, but we greatly appreciate, really appreciate your thoughts, Linda. Well, thanks, everyone. That was fascinating. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. This has been a great series that we've had since COVID started. Um, Bill Cauley came up with the concept, and Mike Avalon's carried it on really well. Um, I learned a whole lot. And I'm a consumer, so I buy everything you say. And uh, I really have enjoyed this program. And I know our members are really going to enjoy it. 
the next program we have actually is Bob Salentic is going to be speaking to our, um, our membership on May 26th at the BELO in person. No more virtual. We're moving back to the office the middle of June and uh, we are ready to get back to business. So I look forward to seeing all of you soon. Uh, thanks so much again and have a wonderful day. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Alan Shore and Dan Hurwitz for joining our latest CRE Executive Roundtable. And I'd also like to thank all the other executives who participated in the call. I'd like to remind each of you to subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media so you don't miss an update from us. We've linked to each of our handles in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.